Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, new Airbnb restrictions soon to take effect sparks backlash from many DC mayors. And FIFA wants Vancouver to do what? We continue our coverage of the ongoing cause of the 2026 FIFA World Cup in our city. And 14 years ago this month, the 2010 Winter Olympics opened in Vancouver. We look back at the legacy and if there was an economic benefit for the city. Plus, a call for meaningful action as we celebrate Pink Shirt Day. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. As of May 1st, as many of you know, BC's Short-Term Rental Accommodation Act, better known as the Airbnb law, comes into effect. The owners will need to either move into the units full-time or rent them out. Now, across BC, with the exception of some resort communities like Whistler and the Gulf Islands, anyone operating a short-term rental in a location of more than 10,000 people must declare that address as their primary residence. Now, with changes coming into effect soon, as I said, May 1st, many mayors across BC are expressing their concerns. From Parksville to Prince George, they are arguing that Airbnbs provide short-term rental accommodations that are desperately needed for their communities. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the short-term rental rules that are coming into effect May 1st is Simon Yu. He's the mayor of Prince George. Mr. Yu, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, how much of an impact do you think the the rules or the uh, the act that comes in on May first will have? How much of an impact will it have on your community? Well, you you're going to have a significant impact because uh, our short term rental unit, based on the information we have gathered at, at the city hall, a lot of them we rent to uh, professionals, medical uh, personnel when they come to the city to do their work. Um, you know, so we, we do need these rentals. And recently, um, because uh, due to various other programs, housing programs, we have converged, um, you know, quite a lot of uh, motels and whatnot into supportive housing. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we, we do need these units. And uh, and, and we, we, we would like to see the minister, you know, we'll, we'll take, a, take a look at our case. Mm-hmm. Um, slightly in a different light. Uh, I know your community is one of them. Uh, Parksville is another community uh, as well. Do you have any sense of how many units you would lose once this uh, uh, this act uh, becomes law? Yeah, we will have approximately right now active um, short-term rental unit, about 250 of them, mm-hmm. and we will be losing uh, these units. Yeah. 250. Now, you mentioned uh, medical professionals, I guess, coming through your community. Uh, but, but, you know, I want to think of Prince George, um, almost a geographic center of our province. You've got work crews coming through there. You probably have business, yeah. uh, business executive sports teams. So is, is this more to do with with the fact that your community is still short of hotel rooms as well then? That's right. And during the, you know, especially when we're having a uh, convention or do we have some uh, big meetings uh, have taken place, and we will be short of accommodation for for people passing by our community to do work. Mm-hmm. Um, as you say, not not only the uh, medical profession, but the other professional as well, because we are we are in the northern transportation hub, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say to someone who would listening to you would go? Well, why don't you approve more hotels to be built? Because clearly there's a demand for more oh. hotel space in your community. What do you, what would you say to that argument? We, we we love that, and that takes time. It's like a catch twenty two, right? We need to we we need to have these accommodation built. I understand, you know, the rationale behind the behind the behind the this uh, bill thirty five. Um, but you know, to we almost there because our 
two years ago, our rental vacancy about 3.7. And just recently, uh, based on the type of uh, the statistic uh, data from the CMHC, uh, says 2.8. But the average last two years still is uh, well above uh, well <clears throat> well above three mm-hmm. uh, three percent. So. Yes, we would like to see, we, we build more uh, hotel accommodations and we like to build more house, housing, period. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes time. You know, we, 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 we need to, you know, address the infrastructure, a whole, whole bunch of other things as well. Uh, certainly in Vancouver here, we have heard in the worst case, in some of the worst examples where people buy up four, five, ten units and then uh, and um, use them as short-term rentals, Airbnb and VRBO. Are you seeing the same as well? Is there abuse of, uh, they're not breaking any laws, but technically you know, mm-hmm. owning five or ten suites uh, or apartments and then using them exclusively for Airbnb? I mean, is that not exacerbating some of the housing challenges in your community? No, uh, I don't think such activity is uh, taking place here in Prince George. Uh, I would love to see, you know, people invest here, and but you know, to to have a uh, investor coming here buying up a quite a few hotel, I mean, I mean, uh, quite a few apartment units just for the purpose of Air, Airbnb. We we don't see that happening here. No. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and your sense, I know the mayor of uh, Parksville has spoken up. Uh, other smaller communities, mayors of other smaller communities are speaking up as well as we get closer to the May 1st date. Uh, how confident are you that you can convince the minister and the government to maybe look re- look at this thing, uh, the act again? Oh, I, I, I I'm a... <laughs> There's, uh, I cannot, you know, say what the minister Ravi going to do, um, but I will plead our case, and uh, I will write a. We will we'll send in our application to see if we can, uh, as a community, opt out for this round, mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully in the, in a couple of year time, as you said, you know, we will have have more hotel room built, and the uh, vacancy rate it's uh, well above. Three, then you know we can continue this segment of the industry, mm-hmm. uh, which, in, in my opinion, is uh, very much needed for our community anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mayor Yu, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. But today, by the way, uh, as you've heard throughout our shows, is Pink Shirt Day. It was first started by grade 12 Nova Scotia students David Shepard and Travis uh, Price, who wanted to show their solidarity for victim uh, for victims of bullying. In this case, uh, this victim was a classmate who was targeted in part for wearing a pink shirt. Uh, that initial show of solidarity has been recognized uh, as a day of action in Canada since 2007 and was adopted in New Zealand uh, in uh, 2009. So we've been celebrating Pink Shirt Day since 2007. Our our show contributor, Jeremy Judson, uh, is at London Drugs at Broadway and Camby celebrating Pink Shirt Day with the good folks there, and she joins us now. Well, thanks, Jazz. I'm here with Edwin Chang. He's the manager of the London Drugs on Broadway Camby, where this big, big event is going down. So my first question to you is, what is London Drugs' role in the CKW Kids Fund Pink Shirt Day? Hey, Jerry. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Um, You know, London Drugs, we're... We're super passionate about supporting communities across Western Canada, uh, and this is one that we're passionate about and continue to support with um, selling pink shirts, toques, bracelets throughout from uh, January and February to support the CKNW Kids Fund. Well, that's amazing. What sort of prompted, I guess, London Drugs to support this initiative, and how successful has it been? 
Uh, it's really successful. We've been in partnership since 2009. 2009? Yeah. And, I you know, and like I said, we're, we're really love to be part of the community and support the communities that we serve. Um, you know, since 2009, approximately $1.3 million we donated to to the different communities throughout. So it's been a, an amazing partnership and a long partnership that we're super proud of. And so all of that money comes from people supporting via buying these shirts and bracelets and stuff like that? Yeah, you can buy the shirts online or you can buy them in store, in all of our stores. And uh, it's either you know, pink shirts we have, the toques and the bracelets and the buttons. And it, it gets a lot of attention from customers and they look for them early. That's so exciting. It's a really fun time and a really fun thing to to be a part of. Do you happen, and it's okay if not, but do you happen to have the numbers of like the amount of shirts, say, sold this year? Uh, I don't have this year because we're still selling. Right. Last year, it was approximately... 16,000 shirts between mostly the shirts and the toques and, and bracelets so it's a it's a lot of merchandise that's been sold through that's fantastic so tell me about today it's a big to do a big event so tell me about some of the stuff that uh, you've got going on today for pink shirt day outside yeah it's exciting it's the second year for the rally here at this location um, so around 3 30 we'll be having uh, the boys and girls club coming and some kids supporting there uh, we have Fortis out front with their tent, with their activation tent, so um, it's going to be a great time and a great afternoon. It looks like the weather's holding too. It's not as rainy as it was earlier, so it's great. I was a little worried at 2 o'clock or <laughs> like closer to yeah, 1.30 the building was getting pelted and I was like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> but that's really nice and it's kind of it's kind of let up. How many, um, I guess it's kind of weird with COVID and stuff, but how many um, pink shirt days have you been a part of? Well, I've been with London Drugs for a long time, so oh, yeah? ever ever since London Drugs has been with 2009, really? I've been a part of, yeah. And it's and it's great for me because I have a young son, um, and I think that you know the anti-bullying and bullying touches a lot of people, and it, it touched us and our family um, when he was a little bit younger. So it's great to be able to support and be a part of it. Well, thank you so much for a little chit chat. I don't keep you any longer because there's plenty of stuff to do, plenty of stuff to read. But yeah, thank you so much and. Uh, yeah, if you wanna if you wanna come down and join the and join the excitement, be a part of the rally, it's at London Drugs on Broadway Canby, all kinds of exciting stuff. Thank you so much, Edwin. Thanks, Jerry. Have a good day. That, of course, was our contributor, Jerry Mayor Judson, speaking to Edwin Chang, who was the store manager for London Drugs at the Broadway and Canby location. Uh, this pink shirt day, you can help stop bullying by going to pink shirt. Uh, day.ca and hitting the donate button. Let's lift each other up this pink shirt day and all year round. That's pinkshirtday.ca. Let's talk a little bit uh, about the uh, BC budget uh, from last week, specifically uh, in regards to the budget and FIFA World Cup. Now, the service plans for uh, the BC Pavilion Corporation are often referred to as PAVCO and the Ministry of Tourism, uh, which came out with the uh, Thursday budget from last week. It didn't include any hard numbers uh, for the uh, FIFA World Cup. Now, uh, to my understanding, uh, PAVCO is planning to renovate BC Place Stadium and is expected to lose uh, $11.6 million in the 2024-2025 fiscal year. Uh, the province did say last year the city of Vancouver would spend, spend anywhere between 240 to $260 million uh, for the um, FIFA World Cup. Now, we bring this up because we are going to have seven games uh, at uh, for, for the FIFA World Cup between June 11th to July 19th of 2020. 
2026, and that's 240 to 260 million dollars was the initial budget that was announced to the public. Well, we learn now that in Toronto the budget was 300 million dollars. That has now ballooned to 300. And $80 million. Uh, and the opposition today, following a report from Global BC's Richard Zussman, have been asking questions. Of why isn't there a line item in the budget that basically says, this is how much we're going to be spending this year, and this is what the budget for FIFA World Cup is going to be. Now, if you let's say a hospital is getting built in Maple Ridge, it would say Maple Ridge Hospital. There would be a line item, and it would tell you how much you're spending this year, to a certain degree, even what they'd be spending overall on that particular project. But here we have a high-profile event, and there uh, was no line item. Well, we were told it's part of the contingency fund that the province had. Today, BC United MLA and Kamloops uh, North Thompson uh, MLA, sorry, Peter Millibar, brought up the issue. He's an opposition critic for finance. He brought up the issue. Take a listen. There's no money in this year's budget in the FIFA line item for contingencies. So unless the minister thinks we're not having fires and floods and unforeseen events this year, that's interesting. However, on page 61, under priority spending, where they only use FIFA as a descriptor for the billion dollars in the budget next year and the $2 billion the following year, the minister doesn't want to shine any light on how much the true cost of FIFA actually is to British Columbians. So that was brought up uh, in the legislature a couple of hours ago. Now, as yesterday, uh, Richard Zussman was on this program, and boy, was he fired up. Uh, he basically talked about the fact that there's no cost breakdown for FIFA. That it's just one big contingency fund, and as Peter Millibar said, it can be used for lots of things. We don't know what the total cost is. This is going to be, some would argue, the biggest event ever hosted by uh, Vancouver and British Columbia, simply by the global audience, not only Forget about the Winter Olympics here. We're talking about the Global South also watching soccer and really caring deeply about this. So one of the things Richard found out was what they were asking for in regards to BC Place and neighboring Park Hotel. Take a listen. We don't know if FIFA demanded to the province in order to host. You have to make sure that there's a host hotel connected directly to a stadium with an entrance because none of those documents have been made public and available for us to understand and analyze. I think, like you said at the beginning, Soccer fans are going to be excited. Seven games is amazing. Two Canadian games, incredible. Uh, uh, two playoff games, Jazz. Like, this is Huge. going to have the city on fire. Yeah. But, you know, what does all of that cost? And what did we commit to doing here? We're, we're on the schedule. This is happening. This is happening, as I said, between June 11th to July 19th in 2026. But what's the true cost? Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, FIFA in 2026 here in Vancouver. It's Rob Fay, weekend morning host here at CKNW and a longtime sportscaster. Welcome, Rob. Welcome. And you hit the nail right on the head. Three and a half billion people. That's half the world's population yeah. watches the World Cup. Yeah. I mean, Winter Olympics was wonderful, but that's a North America, Europe, and some Asia, Asian nations. But, you know, when you talk soccer, you're talking about the world here, and it is a big event. Now, one of the things Richard brought up in our conversation yesterday is they're going to demand upgrades to BC Place. Now, we already know a natural turf field's coming in. That we already knew. We spent, I think, over $600 million to upgrade BC Place before prior to the 2010 Olympics. There is upgrading of the elevator, we are told, and the suites, uh, where all the bigwigs uh, will be hanging out. But it has to, as Richard said in that clip, there has to be a connection to the neighboring park hotel. Now, would that be a tunnel? Like, I'm trying to understand what that would actually mean. So realistically, if you look at BC Place, if you're entering from the second level or you're entering from street level, that could be something as easy as a tarped entryway. It doesn't have to necessarily be a built structure made of concrete per se, but they just need to make sure that they have a private entrance for 
the big wigs to come through or dare we say some of the athletes to come through. So that might not be the biggest line mm-hmm. in the budget, but the reality is is the asks from FIFA are not anywhere near done. Because you think of their previous games and what they've asked of, you know, for example, Qatar and some of the other South African countries before, there were a lot of asks that came in the last 12 months. And I did a little bit of research on it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just want to make sure that if we're doing this as a city, that the things that we're doing benefit us long term. Mm -hmm. We're not making money from TV rights, ticket sales or any of the marketing rights. So how are we generating revenue aside from look at us, we're hosting a game? That to me is the curiosity because if I'm a taxpayer in this market and then all of a sudden I realize that it's going to stuff that's not going to benefit my community, like the one thing with the Olympics is there was a lot of leftover legacy projects. I don't know what they're going to be here when it comes to the World Cup. Yeah, that's the challenge. I mean, if you think about legacy projects or legacy spending, one could argue argue about the Canada line. Uh, You could argue about the Sea to Sky Highway. There was a significant upgrade there. Uh, You can... Uh, point to the Hillcrest Community Center there. That's where the curling, I believe, was held. Uh, And then you have uh, the Olympic Oval itself Mm -hmm. uh, in Richmond uh, and many other legacy projects in Whistler uh, as well. So you've got something to point to. But I just get a little worried when Toronto's already said 300 million is our budget. All of a sudden, it jumps to 380 million. So something tells you it's going to be 400 million easily. Uh, So you've added 100 million dollars to that cost. We're hosting one more game than Toronto. Yep. One more game than Toronto. And when you start talking about, you know, they, they want a ramp upgrade too, I think, because the grade of the ramp at BC Place may be a bit too steep, but that's steep for those in wheelchairs, which is good. We should be doing that anyway. But when I start hearing about upgrading of suites, I get very concerned. Uh, so the fat cats can find it a bit a little easier because at the end of the day, you, you upgrade this thing. For what? For those eight uh, BC Lions games and then the Whitecaps home games? Like, I'm sure they're fine now. Do we really need to be spending that money? Well, this is the question is, what have we committed to that we don't know? You know, in talking with the city today, they said, said, you know, we don't have the numbers right now. But that said, um, once we get together with the provincial government and FIFA, we'll be able to release those numbers. And I said, okay, well, when are you guys going to meet? And they said, well, we have no meetings scheduled. So for all of us right now that are looking for these numbers, they're not coming today or tomorrow because they don't even have a meeting scheduled to get these numbers finalized. So it's going to be a little bit of a little bit, little bit of a while. And no matter how much we bang the drum, I don't think they're coming anytime soon. No, exactly. I mean, remember the initial budget, 240 to 260 was five games. So you're adding two more games, but you're telling me it's going to go up that much. It might, I don't know. And inflation of course is going to play a role uh, as well, but Toronto's Toronto mayor's executive committee uh, said their projections have gone up to 380 from uh, 300 million. So $80 million increase. Uh, Here is a global, BC's Richard Zussman, who broke the story yesterday uh, on this show. You're not going to believe it. So the budget is a three-year <laughs> oh, document, no. and 2026 is within three years. There is one mention of the 2026 FIFA World Cup in the budget, and it is tied to a line about contingencies. And you know what contingencies are? They are built in to pay for emergencies, largely in this province, fires and floods and atmospheric rivers. But somehow the province's budgeting department has decided that FIFA, an event we know about two years out, has been deemed an emergency because the only mention of the FIFA World Cup is under a line item that says this year's budget, we've built in more than $3 billion in contingencies. And some of that is going to be for the 2026 Men's FIFA World Cup. 
That is uh, Global BC's Richard Zussman speaking to us yesterday. Boy, was he fired up. We're also joined by Rob Fay, weekend morning host here at CKNW and longtime sportscaster. You know when he says about the con- contingency as a former MLA, you, I, what, I, what it tells me is just keep it in contingency over the next three years so we don't have to deal with this, any cost overruns in any meaningful way until after this is over. That's why you keep it in contingency because you don't know. That's what's happening. Well, is that the worst thing? I mean, unless they know, then that's where you kind of keep it in a holding pattern. I, I don't know. Is that is that that you're the politician? Well, I'm not. I just but yeah, but it's also you keep it hidden, right? You don't mm. want to do any prying questions because there's a line item. You don't want to have any line items. Just put it in contingency. Uh, contingency that's there for a forest fires, other issues that pop up over the next three years. That's what contingency's there for. Just throw it in there, and uh, you don't have to talk about it too much. But I'd love to hear from you. Six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight star ninety eight ninety eight on your cell phone. Let's go to Jerry in Vancouver. Hi, Jerry. Chaz, how are you? I'm doing well. What's on your mind? I'm all for the FIFA World Cup. I'll tell you two reasons why. Number one, everyone always complains Vancouver's a no-fun city. Mm-hmm. The minute they try to do something that's fun for the, the whole province and the whole country, you know, people complain about how much, how much the cost is. Now, everyone talks about the money going out. What about the money coming in from tourists that are going to be coming to Vancouver? YVR, cabs, Ubers, restaurants, hotels. It's going to bring in millions of dollars. These tourists come to Vancouver... They're probably, some of them would be coming back. So this is not just a short-term game we're playing here. Mm-hmm. We've got to look at the future. We're going to be bringing a lot more money than $360 million over the next probably 10 to 20 but, years but, from but, these tours. But, but aren't those bars going to be full anyway in summertime in Vancouver, evenings, weekends? I mean, I, I am very, I'm always skeptical about those numbers. I mean, I, I don't doubt people are going to come to this community and all that, but I get very skeptical about some of these numbers they throw out in regards to economic benefit. I mean, I, I like the idea of FIFA here. I'm going to try to go, uh, and it's a global audience and something for us to point to. Say, we held the World Cup in Vancouver along with the Olympics and everything else. That's wonderful. But do, do you always buy these economic spinoff stories? I don't. I do. And I think that uh, a lot of people that are complaining will try to buy tickets to go to the game. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Jerry. Really appreciate it. He's got a point. I mean, people mm-hmm. will, when it's here, we're all going to have a great time. We're going to enjoy it. Uh, but like I said, you got to be a bit more open in regards to the cost. All we want is a number. <laughs> we're, we're not saying we don't want the World Cup. Well, Just I, tell us the number. Toronto's already done it. That's all we're asking. Toronto's already done it. Uh, let's go to Carrie in three. Hi, Carrie. Hi, yes. Actually, you kind of just put my mind at ease because I know David Eby put $10.6 billion aside for forest fires, which made me wor- worry that he thinks it's going to be really bad this year. So that must be where the money is hidden. Um, but to, th- to that, I just was at Rugby 7 last weekend. It was fantastic. Yeah. And I love the idea. What I found actually fascinating is that you had the Rugby 7s on Saturday. You had the Canucks game. The whole city was packed. And the, only, the amount of money that we're bringing into it, we've got Rugby 15s now coming in the summer. I know I just read an article that uh, Major League Baseball is looking at, base, at BC Place um, to add a franchise, possibly add a franchise there. Like, I love this idea of bringing tourism, bringing people in for these sporting events. It, it's only be- does better for a, con- uh, for a province. Carrie, thanks for your call. Really appreciate it. I mean, it, 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 I would argue, yes, I mean, I'm going to, I want to go to World Cup. I love World Cup. I love soccer. 
Um, uh, but you know the the idea that the city's going to city's going to be busy anyway, isn't it, Rob? I mean, really, at the grand scheme of things. Well, the one thing that I will say is we've hosted rugby seven, we've hosted a lot of world events, you know, even the Olympic Games. But there is nothing like the World Cup. I mean, no, it nothing. is an event; it's a spectacle, and it's not just the night that the games are in town. It's the whole month that we're going to be hosting games. So I, I see the positives, I see the advantages, but I think the one thing that we want, and I get back to what I just said minutes ago. Just tell us the price, yeah. and then we can start to adjust and get going. We're not here to moan about it. We just want to know what the simple number is. Yeah, exactly. Let's go to uh, Natalie in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Jazz. Um, yeah, so how come these things never get a chance to go to referendum? I mean, didn't Calgary vote for a referendum and they, sh- and they said no to the Olympics? I mean, are we a developing country? Do we need money coming in? Or why doesn't FIFA go to a developing third world country where they need the money to come in? We have enough festivals in the summer throughout Vancouver that it, it, we don't need FIFA. Yeah. In, in my opinion, it's sure it's fun. I'm very, I'm very in favor of sporting events and sports keeps kids out of court. Um, so, but the thing is FIFA World Cup with the, all the criminality associated and, and corruption I, I, I'm pretty certain mm-hmm. a lot of people would have said no through a referendum. Natalie, thank you for your call. Appreciate it. I guess that's one way to do it, but I guess would anything ever get done in the sense of we, would we would we at the Olympics? Referendums slow things down in a lot. One thing yeah. I will say is Vancouver and Canada as a whole probably looked really nice to FIFA for the simple fact that the infrastructure is already in place. Yeah. We've got our transit, we've got the stadiums, we've got everything that we need. So uh, I got to think that FIFA looked at us and said, absolutely. And yeah. we looked at FIFA and said the same thing like we're ready for these games yeah i think i think just a bit more clarity in regards to what they want us to do at bc place what the cost of that's going to be would be would go a long way i think even a you know a bump up in some of the costs is not going to irk the public they're going to they're going to love fifa being here uh, but at least be open but when you look at toronto 300 million to 380 you know that's a that's a sure sign <laughs> where we may be heading in that direction won't be the last up no 380 is not the final number either you don't think so i eh? guarantee it won't be yeah, think about it. You still got two years to go. You yeah. don't think there's going to be something that comes up with the budget that's going to bump that into the fours, yeah. maybe the fives? Yeah. Ugh. My God. Not good. Not good. Rob, thank you. Thank you. Let's focus a little bit on Pink Shirt Day. We had uh, spoken to our contributor, Jerry Mayer Judson, uh, at 335. Uh, Jerry was uh, at uh, London Drugs, one of our strong supporters. Now, Pink uh, Shirt Day was started by Grave 12 uh, Nova Scotia students David Shepard and Travis uh, Price, who wanted to show their solidarity for a victim of bullying who was targeted in part for wearing a pink shirt. Uh, that initial show of solidarity has been recognized uh, as a day of action in Canada since 2007 and was adopted in New Zealand in 2009 as well. Uh, we are certainly uh, proud supporters of Pink Shirt Day, as, it, as our good friends over at Global BC are as well. But one of the uh, instrumental individuals uh, who got behind Pink Shirt Day was a former host here uh, who <laughs> went on and did uh, great things as Premier of British Columbia as well. She joins us now. Christy, welcome. Hey, nice to be back, Jess. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Christy Clark, of course, our former premier, uh, host here, uh, cabinet minister as well. Um, When you first heard uh, of this Pink Shirt Day and the events that occurred, what sort of motivated you to get behind this particular cause? I read about it in the Globe and Mail about these kids at this school in Nova Scotia. It was just, you know, it was a story buried in the newspaper one day. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know... 
I'd been hearing about bullying on my show. I'd been, you know, open line, people phoning in. I talked about it a little bit on my show. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was this story of this woman phoned up and she said, Christy, I am in my 90s. And the thing, the worst thing that's ever happened to me and something I will never forget is this instance of bullying. And I said, how old were you then? She was like seven years old. And that it really stuck with me because you realize how resonant bullying is for people, how hard it is for people to get over the sense of injustice, the shame of it. And so then I read the story in the Globe and I'm like, you know what? This doesn't have to be just at one school in Nova Scotia. We can make this a big thing across the country. And you are not giving CKNW enough credit in mm-hmm. this because I walked down the hall and I went to Ian Koenig's Fest and to Tom Plasteris. And I said, you know, I have this idea. Not sure if it would really work, but what if we did a pink shirt day in BC? They were both like all over it. And right. then we spent a month programming. Mm-hmm. Thank you, CKNW. Mm-hmm. They found... Tons of sponsors for it. The phone wouldn't stop ringing. And then our first pink shirt day, I walk into work and every newspaper has the front page is pink. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. And, you know, that's the power of this radio station, but it is also the power of the issue and how much people feel it and how resonant it is. It's interesting. I I think sometimes when you think of of bullying, you you sort of slough it off as those are the school years or high school years, whatever it may be. But you raise a very good point. That stays within an individual forever and can shape an individual Mm -hmm. as an adult. Can't it? It can, absolutely. And, you know, pe- that's, people remember that forever. And it's just something that's really hard to get over. And the thing that I realized is that most people have experienced bullying. Or if not, and if not them, they have a child or a sibling who experienced it and they've seen the damage that it does. It's such a common problem and it goes unaddressed. And the thing that drove me crazy when I was doing this all the time, Jazz, was Mm -hmm. having people phone in and go, for goodness sake, Christy, like what doesn't kill you makes you tougher. You know, (laughs) people need to go through some tough stuff. They need to be called a few names and that'll only make them stronger in the end. And what I realized through the work on this that we've done, we did over the years is it doesn't make people stronger. It damages people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, a lot of this is about awareness. And I think that's really important. I see that my own son, when he was growing up in elementary school, talking about bullying with his class. And I mean, there was a broader conversation, which I was very happy about because we didn't do that myself growing up, of course. So that's a wonderful thing. But I, I guess the conversation, uh, the question I want to ask you is awareness is one thing. The other should be a call for action. How do we deal with that? Is, I mean, there, should there be greater accountability demanded by teachers and principals in schools? Should we be demanding more from parents? Where do we go from here? Well, I think I have to give full credit to schools and educators, teachers, in the work that they've done around this, in educating classes, they've really brought it into the schools, and they schools have really embraced it. I mean, when I was when I became premier, we we brought in specific anti bullying lots of curriculum mm-hmm. um, into the schools, but um, I it, it's also been parents. You know, I think parents are just. More, maybe more involved in their kids' education than our parents were. Yeah, that's true. That's and true. I think it's, um, and kids are, 
I think most important in this in that they are accepting responsibility not to be bystanders. And really, to me, that's probably the most important form of of action that all of us can take. If you see somebody being bullied, you need to step in. You need to say something. You need to call it out because bullies operate, the energy that they get is from the silence and implicit acceptance of those around them. Mm -hmm. When that acceptance is withdrawn and it's quite explicit that what they're doing isn't acceptable anymore. Mm-hmm. Bullies find themselves going out of business pretty quick. Yeah. Now there's that the traditional bullying that people would do person to person. It is now exacerbated by social media, uh, directly, indirectly. Kids are also uh, in schools with uh, cell phones. Uh, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about this growing movement in the United States. I think there's over 900 school districts now in the U.S. that are part of a class action lawsuits. We've actually talked to the senior lawyers who are part of that class action suit in the U.S. I mean, they're basically these lawyers that we used to focus on big tobacco, asbestos, are now focusing on social media companies. And it's bullying may not be the number one issue, but it is damaging our kids in regards to da- bullying being part of it, but it's online bullying. Uh, I know you don't want to – generally premiers don't comment on other premiers and their policies and governments and policies – but in regards to what you're seeing across the U.S. with lawsuits, governments now talking about potentially bringing in legislation, government here in British Columbia doing the same. What are your thoughts broadly on on this issue? Well, I would say we do need to do more about what's going on online. The kind of the Wild West era, I think, has to end, mm-hmm. um, and we have to protect. We have to find ways to protect kids. So I don't know if all of the current legislation that's proposed is going to work as expected or going to do what we hope it will do. But I'm glad people are thinking about it, talking about it, trying to do something, mm-hmm. because we can't just let our kids grow up in this completely uncurated environment where they're exposed to all this potential harm. I mean, you're a parent. I'm a parent. Lots of people listening are parents. We know our job is to protect our children from mm-hmm. harm. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to do with the internet out there today. So I'm glad people are thinking about taking steps on this. I don't know if it's all going to work. Mm-hmm. We're gonna, it's going to probably be a, you know, a rocky, uncertain pathway to get there. But I think we need to do more. We are speaking to former Premier Christy Clark. We're talking about uh, Pink Shirt Day. Pink Shirt Day, of course, started uh, by grade 12 Nova Scotia students David Shepard and Travis Price, who wanted to show their solidarity for a victim of bullying who was targeted in part for wearing a pink shirt. And of course, uh, this day has also been adopted uh, in New Zealand in 2009, recognized as a day of action uh, here in Canada in 2007. Uh, if you can donate, please do so. Join us at pinkshirtday.ca. Uh, Chrissy, one of the other things um, that I find interesting, we're talking about kids and bullying, but let's talk about adults just for a second. Okay. I think I know where this is I going, know. Jazz. The reason I was saying that, it was, I was uh, before we went on air, a question period was on at the provincial legislature, and uh, one of our young producers uh, was mentioning, look at those guys going at each other, bullying each other. And it was, you know, and, and I take that with a grain of salt because, hey, I was there at one point, but, and, it, and it is... It's meant to be confrontational. That's what question period is. Uh, And sometimes people get confused by that. They think we don't like each other and and we agree in the hallways and we may disagree on certain parts of policies, but but that's the nature of it. But generally people believe politics has become much more vitriolic, um, much more confrontational. Um, 
is this the just a phase of polarization in your mind, or do you think this is a deeper societal issue here in regards to <laughs> bullying with adults as well? Well, okay. So on the question period thing, yeah, I always think of it like hockey. You know, hockey yeah. play great. Hockey players get on the ice. Sometimes they mix it up. They get off the ice. It's no problem. Yeah. And question period really is sort of in that realm to me, right? It's yeah. a bit of theater and, you know, and you see tons of politicians who fight like cats and dogs. And you know this, Jazz, because you were one of them. Yeah. You were at, you were one of the very best in question period. But, you know, you didn't hate those guys and they didn't hate you, no, right? No, I, so. I would literally would write notes to some of them and crack a joke <laughs> and then the page would drop them up and, you know, and I'll say it, the premier would laugh. He, this stuff you don't see on camera. Yeah, he would laugh yeah. or he would send me something or Mike yeah. Farnworth. So, but we would go at it and the cameras would see two people going at That's it. That's right. But it is, I mean, d- d- there is something different now, isn't it, in regards to our polarized yeah, politics? Yeah, I do. Well, you know... I and I really regret the way this direction Canada's gone in because mm-hmm. I mean you see it in the United States right it's where it all began it's been so divided Trump got elected and then there was the Trump derangement syndrome on the left and then on the left you know it made Trump stronger and then I mean it's just been terrible right mm-hmm. in Canada we only survive as a country when we are united I mean British Columbia needs to know how much we need Ontario and Quebec needs to understand how much they need Alberta. And I mean, and we have had a long tradition of federal politicians who have been talking about how we share things in common. We don't have that now, Jazz. I mean, it's heartbreaking. We see the prime minister, you know, really setting central Canada against the West. We see the federal conservatives super negative really divisive campaign as well, I think most people would argue. And I just think, I don't know how Canada's going to survive in that environment. And I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a natural outcome of social media or anything like that. I think it's a terrible strategy on behalf of both party leaders that they're taking on at great risk to the unity of this country. And I think we should all worry about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was listening to uh, some analyst uh, in, uh, amongst Republicans, actually a, a former uh, uh, senator, and they had asked, now retired, said, well, when, how do we get past, when do you think we're going to get past polarization? <laughs> this is the Republican Party, keep in mind. He said, I think 2032, it should be okay by then. But this is how far down we're talking about, because yeah. you got an election this year, uh, huge support within the Republicans, certainly amongst the base uh, of by for Donald Trump, and he certainly has changed. Um, how do we get beyond this? If you say Canada is about, you know, making sure, understanding how connected we are, how do we get beyond that here? Well, I think we need to, I think we need to elect different people. I mean, I really, I really, and I don't think that the divisiveness reflects the views of most Canadians. No doubt there are a lot of Canadians who are looking at that and saying, yeah, I feel that way too. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I think what most people care about is economic growth, low taxes, bigger paychecks, a healthcare system that works, and remembering that we do share things in common. I always tell people, you know, because I spend more time in the States now for work and things like that. You know, Americans look pretty divided, but they have a lot that binds them together, a constitution that they all love to fight about all the time. They have great historical figures like Abraham Lincoln that they all rally around. They have tons of things that knit them together in their history, including a revolutionary war. Yeah. We don't have many of those things in Canada that bind us together. And so the thing that really that we need are leaders who remind us of the things that we share in common. And you know, 
that's been missing in our Canadian dialogue for, you know, five, maybe 10 years now. We need to get it back. We need to find a way back there. Yeah, we take it for granted. It's easy to keep a country together with only 40 million people stretched over five time zones. That's yeah, right. right. It's And we're from all over different countries in the world, which is fantastic. But one of the great projects of Canada is to create a new country every day. And part of that is reminding us of why Canada matters and why the values of Canada matter to each of us. And so those, those commonalities, um, again, it's a teachable moment for every new person that comes in the country. And I think a lot of people get here nowadays and look around and go, so what's Canada about? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Christy, uh, absolutely great to chat with you. Thank you so much for your time today. I love seeing you, Jazz, and I love being back here at NW. (laughs) That's great. That is Christy Clark, former Premier of BC, of course, who spearheaded Pink Shirt Day during her time here at CKNW. Reminder, of course, let's lift each other up this Pink Shirt Day and all year round. Uh, You can donate uh, by uh, going to our website, pinkshirtday.ca. That's pinkshirtday.ca. The International Olympic Committee has the honor of announcing that the 21st Olympic Winter Games in 2010 are awarded to the city of Vancouver. Those are some of the sounds. 14 years ago when Vancouver welcomed the world, they, they, as the uh, Olympic Committee there announced that Vancouver would be hosting the 2010 uh, Olympics. Uh, a lot of positives, of course, came from that. When you think of what we have built uh, in this city, you think of the Richmond Oval, the Canada Line, the Olympic Village. Uh, we were talking earlier today about the Sea of Sky Highway uh, as well. Uh, but it didn't leave long-term Uh, impacts on this city, not just the physical infrastructure that we built, but what were some of the downsides of the Olympics? And I think it's an important conversation to have as we've been talking about the FIFA 2026 uh, games coming here with uh, seven games in Vancouver and already questions about what the budget will look like, even though Toronto's budget has now gone up from 300 million to 380 million. And joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the 2010 Vancouver Olympics 14 years later uh, is Andy Yan. He's an urban planner, associate professor in urban studies and director of the city program at Simon Fraser University. Andy, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jess. Good afternoon. Uh, now, I talked about some of the physical inf- infrastructure, and many people would point to that, and although one could argue, hey, that would have had been built anyway, because we need it. Uh, so I'll make some of that arg- some of those arguments for you right now. But in regards to what you look at, which is, you know, you look at real estate, you look at the city right. itself, uh, how would you view the 2010 Olympics and its impact on Vancouver? Well, I think it's one of those things that offered, I think, a moment, certainly the merch, but then I think it's like, what's the message? And I think that it's one of those things where you kind of look at all those legacies towards some of the physical legacies. And yet, I think that you you look in forward, it hasn't necessarily, I think, left the kind of economic legacy, perhaps people had hoped, uh, if you will. Uh, household household incomes really haven't really grown significantly in the region. And I think that it's in, in the hopes of kind of garnering a new global interest in terms of economic development in Metropolitan Vancouver or in British Columbia, it seems to be a little bit on the flat side. Uh, so you're saying that salaries have been flat uh, and you're attracting more people from outside who want to live here. Uh, so in, in your mind, would that be not a net, net, uh, net negative considering where real estate prices are today? 
Well, I think that it could have been a net positive towards what kind of new economic activities um, that could could have been started. I think that it is still one of those, I think, aspects of hosting these mega events. Um, what do they catalyze? I think that, I mean, what you had mentioned, I think, in certainly in terms of the Canada line, in terms of some of the infrastructure investments, I think, you know, really do, that does facilitate, I think, a greater economic development. But at the same time, I think that it's also still, I think, a key challenge even after even 14 years, what the economic development legacy of the Olympics was. I mean, you, you point out to Expo 86, you know, the, the, the last major global event we had in the city of Vancouver, I could actually point out how it launched several major new architectural firms that really became global leaders. But then this time around, I think the actual legacies, I think, are a little more muted, that I think the way that business was done in setting up 2010 uh, didn't necessarily have the catalytic effect for new firms and new businesses and new industries in Vancouver, that in metropolitan Vancouver or British Columbia, that we perhaps had hoped for. Hmm. Is it fair to say, would, could one argue that maybe we expect too much from these global uh, events? Um, is, isn't it just to say, look, we're going to hold it here because A, it adds prestige to our city and that should be enough. Yes, we'll try to build some longer-term infrastructure that uh, we can point to. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, mm-hmm. this is also about marketing the city on a global stage. Is, is there a benefit there for that? I think that it's probably also more reflecting upon at what stage the city and the province is. That, you know, we are certainly a very different city than we were from 1986. Uh, we are definitely a different city in, since 2010. And I think that it's a, it's a question of do these global effects, uh, global events really have the kind of effects uh, we, we, we would like simply because we're different now. That I think that, you know, if, you, if people don't know the name of Vancouver globally, I mean, they certainly know know it now through any number of avenues. And I think that that is perhaps something that to understand that, you know, hosting these global events may not necessarily, I think, have the, uh, the, the benefits that you would think simply because we're different now. Mm-hmm. We're at a different stage of who we are as a as a province, and that these types of events, which perhaps are for these kind of smaller, lesser known uh, cities, perhaps is not something that we perhaps hope we we might have grown out of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say then, in regards to having an impact, you've talked about uh, incomes not growing in the region, prices going up, mm-hmm. a greater emphasis on housing policy income policy, those types of deeper policy issues. That's where we should be focusing now rather than worrying about attracting big name games or events because that really doesn't move the needle in regards to the quality of life and livability for local people. Right. Well, well, that was the interesting thing was what I wanted to do was also look at, say, you know, the prospects. Remember that I think um, a couple of years back, there was a desire for a Vancouver 2030 bid mm-hmm. and, you know, and the promise that that would be, you know, that that would cost about four billion dollars, but a billion dollars would be coming out of taxpayer or it would be would be needing to come from taxpayers that out of that one billion dollars, what you know, what could you get? For that, for say a a Vancouver 2030 games versus a billion dollars spent any other different way, 
Hmm. Uh, the issue of uh, FIFA World Cup, seven games here, uh, mm-hmm. already where, and this is initial stages, these things come and go, and I get that, but uh, Toronto's um, budget just went up from $300 million to 380 so far. Uh, mm-hmm. Vancouver's is around 240 to 260 officially, but uh, the government hasn't given us any new numbers, and right. of course in, inflation is an issue uh, yeah, as well. Yeah. <laughs> do you, I mean, I know this may not be a fair question, but do you think we're heading in the same direction in regards to cost and cost going up? I think that it's not only cost and cost going up, but it's actually, I think this is really unfortunate, is governance is actually, I think, the lack of transparency. Um, one has to remember that when it came to the 2010 games, um, the the records, uh, they never went through an auditor general review, that the organizing committee was not subject to a freedom of information uh, law, and, and the minutes and the board minutes and the financial files won't be available uh, at the city archives until fall 2025. So in that way, we still don't really know what the final financial legacy or the kind of sponsorship and the economic deals were needed to make 2010 happen. And unfortunately, it looks like some of those tactics are being repeated with the FIFA games because you could just see how different the transaction, the, the transparency has been between Toronto, Seattle and Vancouver. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Most cities have given a sense of where the dollars are going to be, what it's going to cost, but we are still struggling with that <laughs> here in, here in, here in Now, having said that, would you want to go to a few games? Are you a soccer fan? Um, I'll, I'll join the bandwagon, you know, so, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll go, go team, go team. But, but, but I think it, it does talk about the moments that bring us together. Yeah. I think that there is that question of what are the things that bring us together as a province and as a country, but then also what's the cost and what are the trade-offs? And I think that this is really a fair discussion in our, in our democracy. But then at the same time, we also have to think about investing on ourselves, that it isn't about investing in parties, it's about investing in ourselves and what that investment looks like uh, you know, for, for this generation and future generations to come. Andy, as always, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure, Chaz. Vancouver's Jewish community is concerned that uh, UBC Student Union could decide uh, the fate of Halal House uh, tonight at a meeting uh, where they are looking uh, at that particular organization and its lease. UBC Alma Mater Society will discuss and consult tonight on whether a referendum question calling for the termination of Halal House and its lease, uh, the adoption of a boycott, disinvestment and sanctions uh, as well. Joining me to talk a little bit about this conversation and the potential vote tonight uh, is Nico Slabinski, Vice President of the Centre for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Nico, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Uh, let's talk first about uh, Halil House itself. What does it represent for students at UBC and for the broader Jewish community? You know, the Halil House um, has been a safe space for Jewish students on campus, particularly at UBC since um, 1947. As a student myself um, in UBC, I attended programming uh, at Halil House. Hillel House provides social, cultural, and religious programming for Jewish and non-Jewish students. And uh, from my time at uh, Hillel House as a student at UBC, you know, I saw Hillel House contributing uh, to a greater diversity and dialogue on this campus, but also on all the campuses where Hillel Houses are present across North America and around the world. Mm. Now, the three-page referendum um, includes a, a lengthy list of demands 
from UBC, including the acknowledgement that Israel is committing genocide in its war against Hamas, uh, public mm-hmm. condemnation by the university administration of the bombing in Gaza, uh, and cessation of ties with entities the petitioners deem complicit in genocide. Uh, what do you expect will occur tonight? Well, the AMS has a a choice to make tonight. Um, the president, the council, um, they, their choice is simple. Will they stand for diversity and student safety on campus by condemning this discriminatory referendum? Or will they allow for the mainstreaming of anti-Semitism at UBC? If this referendum goes ahead, what it will tell to Jewish students, to Jewish staff, to Jewish academics, and to the Jewish community, is not only that UBC is no longer a safe space for everybody, is that we are no longer welcome on that campus. Has the community in, in, in expressed what you just expressed uh, on our program here directly to the AMS? I know that over the last number of days, the community both uh, on campus and off campus has been very active in expressing their concerns with the intended referendum to the AMS. Let me tell you that, you know, since the October 7th terrorist attacks committed by Hamas, spaces like the Hillel House on campus have become all more vital for Jewish students as campuses have become more challenging spaces for our community in this province and across the country. Do you expect to see more of this type of action on campuses in British Columbia moving forward if if, uh, the AMS Society moves forward tonight on this issue? I am very troubled by this referendum. And um, this referendum would marginalize Jews on campuses and create division amongst the UBC population. I hope that the AMS will make the right decision tonight and will reject this referendum. That will signal that this kind of inflammatory referendum questions have no space on campuses. This is not the first time that similar referendums come to UBC. Over the past number of years, we have had similar referendums and they were defeated every single time. We need to ask ourselves, what is the obsession some students have with the Jewish population on campus? Why do you think this is happening? Not just that it, it, this conversation with the UBC's alma mater society, but broadly, you're seeing it uh, in many other places here in British Columbia and across Canada. Why do you think this is happening? That is um, a really good question. I think that some people have an obsession with both Israel and the Jewish community to delegitimize, demonize, and discriminate against Jews on campus. This is not about Israel. We are talking about the Jewish home on campus. So the question is to those who seek to discriminate and demonize that very same Jewish community on campus. Why are they doing this? Nico, uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, you making time for, for myself and for our audience today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Josh.
Well, let's talk a little bit about Pink Shirt Day. We had former Premier Christy Clark on at 4.30 to chat a little bit about uh, Pink Shirt Day. She played a big role in regards to getting uh, that particular day off the ground while she was a host here at CKNW. Uh, for those who don't know, Pink Shirt Day was started by grade 12 Nova Scotia students David Shepard and Travis Price, who wanted to show their solidarity for a victim of bullying who was targeted, in part, for wearing a pink shirt. The, this initial show of solidarity has been recognized as a day of action in Canada since 2007 and was adopted in New Zealand in 2009. Joining us now is Carol Todd, founder of the Amanda Todd uh, Legacy Society. Amanda Todd, as you know, is a teen who died by suicide after being targeted by online sextortion. Uh, Carol, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, What does a day like today mean for you? Oh, a day like this sort of brings memories into my head of when Amanda was younger and um, this day meant so much to her and we always had to have a new pink shirt every day and um, we'd go out and we'd find one or she'd create one and it was it was just really nice. But those memories, those are memories, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in regards to the broader issue uh, of of, uh, of bullying, uh, you mm-hmm. obviously had a front row seat in regards to uh, a court case. Uh, but in regards to schools themselves, do you think we're doing a better job today in regards to the broader issue of bullying and educating our kids? I think, you know what, generally we are because we have learned so much about what bullying is. There's There's the bullying face-to-face and there's cyber bullying, the ongoing attacks, you know, abusive behaviors online. Um, There's hate speech. There's things that people say and do to us. You can't unsee anything. So, you know, in schools, we talk about it all the time. We embed it into what we're teaching the kids. And and my, me, myself, I work for the Coquitlam School District, and um, my portfolio is actually digital literacy and online safety and digital citizenship and teaching kids how to use um, the Internet respectfully and responsibly. And so I know that in my district, we work really hard in trying to get... Um, teachers to to understand and be able to talk to their kids in the right ways right and and also the parents we're Mm -hmm. big on parent education Uh, there's been a lot of talk um, in U.S. school districts where um, many of them are suing uh, social media companies uh, for the impact it's having on kids in schools not just distraction in schools uh, but in regards to on uh, digital um, uh, online uh, bullying. Um, mm-hmm. And we've talked about that here in British Columbia as well, banning cell phones in schools, which is coming in the fall. Do you think it's the right way to go? I think we call it, it would be called restricting, mm-hmm. right? Because you still have to, if you ban it, that's 100% not in the hands of kids are in the schools and in today's world we're using technology as a learning tool so there's there's like you have to balance it and there's people that kids that need tools for accessibility whether they have vision problems or hearing problems or reading challenges right they need those tools and so teaching the kids about responsible use but also pulling back and I believe that you know, in most of our middle schools in Coquitlam and elementaries, the kids don't have access to their devices during the day anyways. And, and so, um, you know, the, the challenge is secondary in, in high school kids. And what we've done 
everywhere is we've already put them in the hands for years and now taking taking the devices away or or you know regulating um and restricting is going to be a challenge um because the kids aren't used to it but you know what in my mind sometimes it's really necessary in order for them to focus um in class and also um th- there needs to be more space to face social interaction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right and yeah it, 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 I do, and that's one of the things which just you're absolutely right about just uh, face-to-face interaction. Now, the fe- the federal um, government introduced uh, uh, an online legislation in regards to harms and discrimination. Um, you're supportive of that? Yes, I am. I've I've read over the summary. Mm-hmm. Haven't read the 104 pages yet of the bill, um, but what I've seen, I I really like, and it's it's all but one. All but one of the um, content areas affected Amanda, right? The non-consensual intimate images, the bullying, the online hate, the harassment, all that stuff affected Amanda. And I have been hopeful for the last 11 and a half years that our country would do something about it. And I have, I've vocalized that too. And then watching other countries around us, the UK, Australia, the EU, um, and even the United States working on it. And I always wondered, like, where is the country that I live in? Um, what, when are they going to bring this up? And so then I heard inklings and um, I was invited to one of the community partner meetings. And um, I'm so glad that this week they were able to table it. Mm -hmm. However, it disappoints me when I see so much opposition and and so many words on social media denouncing the parts of the bill. And, you know, they talk about people are talking about freedom of speech and the hate. and, And why don't why can't like why is that in the bill and, and all that stuff? People need to understand that hate speech is abusive language mm-hmm. and abusive language hurts um, our kids and it hurts our adults often enough, oftentimes. And it's abusive language that spirals our kids into mental health distress and ultimately self-harm sometimes. And then like my daughter, she died by suicide, and it was through the abusive language of others. Carol, on a day like today, I really appreciate you making time for us here in our audience. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeff. That is Carol Todd, mother of Amanda Todd and founder of the Amanda Todd Legacy Society. Uh, on this uh, Pink Shirt Day, let's lift each other up. Uh, you can donate at pinkshirtday.ca. That's pinkshirtday.ca. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.